good. Okay. Um, so it has Neuromancer. Everyone finish it? No? Um, okay, well, I thought what we would do is start talking about some of the background for it today. You all did finish, I'm sure, um, experiment, um, the experiment. Um, so you can see, even if you've just started Neuromancer, uh, ways that the two fictions are similar, but also ways that they're different. Um, Neuromancer is where the term, actually not in Neuromancer, but um, in an earlier story, which um, is set in the same world, in the sprawl, um, with Molly, um, where the term cyberspace comes from. Uh, William Gibson coined the term in writing about cyberspace in 1982, and then Neuromancer is shortly after that. Um, so he has, among many other honors, he has the honor of inventing that term. Um, it's the space part of it is important um, because it's not real space. And we've been talking a lot about space in the course of this course and what our intuitions about space are. That is what we think space is, what we, we, we expect space to be, how we expect space to, be, to behave, and also the question whether there is such a thing as space or not, whether space is emptiness or whether it is something that something like a coordinate system can measure out, parcel out, um, give a location to, um, rather than it's being sheer emptiness. Um, one of the things that we talked about a bit and may have occasion to talk about um, some more is the question of the constancy of the speed of light. And um, part of the reason that Einstein was led to his um, very unexpected conclusions was that, it, do people know about this, about trying to measure ether? Um, okay, so, sorry? You mean, or lack thereof? Well, lack thereof is a very easy thing to say. So, um, yes. but also a very hard thing to say, or a very hard thing to think. Easy thing to say, hard thing to think. So Too let me, sorry? Too many syllables, like sounds. So just, here's a very, 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 very brief um, history of ether. Um, not the ether that there's a statue to in the Boston Public Garden. Do you know that? The best statue in the Boston Public Garden, do you know it? Do you know it? There's a monument to ether. It was, invented in it was invented in Mass General. That ether. Yeah, ether bunny, as we sometimes call No, we don't. You guys, is it that time of semester? Knock, knock. Ether. Ether bunny. Yeah, good. Knock, knock. Anna. Anna who? What, and another ether bunny. What do you guys spend your childhood on? Knock, knock. Who's there? Stella. Stella who? Stella, another ether bunny. <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there? Cor Cora. Cora. Cora run over all the ether bunnies. Aww. Knock, knock. Who's there? Boo. This is Don't cry. There'll be more ether bunnies next year. So really, what do you do with your childhoods? <laughs> You're are you, what are you shocked by? How funny that is or that we're spending time on this? <laughs> All right, you've learned something. Everybody. How many people have never heard this? There's a, you, the last version is, knock, knock, orange. 
aren't you glad this wasn't another either bunny knock-knock joke? Yeah. All right. <laughs> I overstayed my welcome there. Okay, but that was the point. We went meta in a really cool way. <laughs> okay, yeah. I heard the best knock-knock joke recently. What's you that? Go first. I love this one so much. <laughs> I know this one. Sorry. It's one of my favorites. Do you know how to keep a moron in suspense for 24 hours? Um, is this the one where you have a piece of paper that says, for, uh, for something very interesting, see the other side on both sides? <laughs> uh, it's similar, but I'll tell you tomorrow. Um, okay. So, <laughs> all right. <laughs> now that you're warmed up. Um, <laughs> Space or okay, ether? What? Is that? Are we done with glass? No. Now that we got that one good laugh. Uh, no, but maybe it, <laughs> that would be a good thing. Um, okay, in the public garden, there is a statue to ether. Ether, as anesthesia, was invented, not actually invented in Boston General Hospital, but first used there um, and first studied there so that people could um, have surgery and not die. Um, and. There's a citizen of Boston, if you go see the Statue of Ether, um, what you will see is a turbaned god or godlike figure holding a man in his arms who is in complete unconsciousness, in a state of complete unconsciousness. And the, um, on the um, plinth it says, um, erected by a grateful citizen of the city of Boston um, in honor of the... Um, um, relief from pain or something like that in honor of, of the discovery of how to provide relief from pain. Um, the discovery of anesthesia was one of the most important things in the history of medicine. It's not just that it makes people more comfortable when they're being amputated, which is what it was used for, but that um, the shock of amputation um, will kill people if the amputation doesn't go incredibly fast. Um, people will die due to shock. And ether, by sparing you pain and consciousness, also, also um, spares you the shock. And so it's, in fact, um, saved a lot of lives as well as saving a lot of suffering for, and made surgery, made modern versions of surgery possible. It's called ether because... Um, ether is ex is extremely um, uh, is an extremely volatile and sublimate gas, um, very low density, and that's why you talk about going up into the ether. Spirits of ether will rise up. That's why if you're around um, a, a um, dish of ether, you should be careful what you inhale because it rises up into the air. So ether is something that is very very um, thin and nebulous, a gas, an atmosphere that's very, very thin and nebulous. And so it's called ether for the same reason that the ether that was thought to fill the universe is called ether. Now, why did people think ether filled the universe? Um, why was it only at the beginning of the 20th century that people started realizing that there was no such thing as ether? Why was it only really after the First World War that physicists generally accepted that there was no such thing as ether. Um, one of you is a physics major, right? Or at least one of you is. Um, so do you know? Oh, well. Um, sorry? Well, modern measurements showed that there wasn't ether. Um, and that really weirded people out. So here, yeah? This is the mountaintop experiment with the spinning wheel. 
No. Um, this is the Michelson and Morley um, two rays of light shot at right angles to each other. Yeah, that's what I mean. They did, they did it on a mountaintop? <laughs> at, least, at least one, one iteration of the experiment. Um, because, you know, they were trying to calculate the speed of light in different directions. Yeah. So you had two neighboring mountaintops. Um, that's how, you, I mean, you get a really nice line of sight that's a very long distance there. And you have, a, I believe it was steam-powered, a rotating mirror. Mm -hmm. um, and so you end, you end up, uh, you send the, the ray of light. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to um, get it so that the, so that, is it, one rotating mirror or two rotating mirrors? In any case, it's a split. It's a forty-five degree mirror that splits the light. Right. It's a half-silvered right. mirror. And the, the idea is you, you're trying to time it because of the, the rotation gives you a, a timing. Uh, yeah. To the to, you know, um, if if you have these two rotating things, then when the light hits it, you're only going to get a, a, a flash of light every right. time that it. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I mean, when we learned this in, in third grade, they skipped a lot of stuff. It's like the associative law. They didn't tell you what they weren't telling you. Um, but basically, here's the idea. Here's the quick history that you should know. Descartes, remember him? Because he's really important also in Neuromancer, right? How's he important in Neuromancer? I think therefore I am. And who is that a question about? Wintermute, um, for sure. The Dixie Flatline, when um, Case is asking him whether he has consciousness or not. Um, does he think? That's the question. Um, anyone seen Blade Runner? The great movie? Yeah, some of you saw it in film. The great movie Blade Runner? Know the name of the main character in Blade Runner? Deckard, which is actually... Ooh! Rick Deckard, Rene Descartes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, there's a scene in, in um, uh, Blade Runner where he's enhancing the photograph and he's doing it through a coordinate system. Um, so that's the point. He's saying, you know, go, go to, and he gets caught. Yeah, good. You're one step ahead of me. Yes, what, what it was all about. Yeah, and in fact, in fact, Pris, Pris um, Daryl Han, Hannah, who is she? She's not Pris. At any rate, there's one point where she says to, she is Pris? She says to J.R. Sebastian, um, I think therefore I am J.R. Um, or J.F. Sebastian, rather. I think therefore I am J.F. So, the, so in Blade Runner, the replicants are asserting that they have human minds, that each will say, I think therefore I am. Um, that's, why the, that's why Sean Young, spoiler alert, doesn't know she's a replicant. Um, because she thinks, or she thinks she thinks. Um, so that, that's a Cartesian idea. At any rate, the same Descartes. Are you sad that I gave the spoiler away? It's not a big deal. <laughs> it really it's so obvious from the first time you see her that even Sean Young, the actress, might be a replicant. Um, even the actress playing. Um, sorry? She's not very convincing as a human. No, not even in real life. Um, so... <laughs> Um, we'll talk about Turing tests in a minute. Okay, so the same Descartes, the same Dame Cart, no, you won't get that joke, the same Descartes, um, was wondering about how you could talk about how far away planets and stars were. And he said, what is it that you're measuring when you measure the distance from the Earth to the moon? 
or when you measure the distance from the Earth to Mars. Um, you're measuring something. You're measuring the length of something. If you measure the distance from me to you, you're essentially measuring how much air is between us. There's something between us that you're measuring. But if you try to measure through empty space, space is nothing. How can you measure nothingness? I mean, two times nothing is nothing. Five times nothing is nothing. How can something be twice as far away or, as or five times as far away as something else? And one proof that you're really trying to measure nothingness is the Galileo wheel that we looked at. That is to say, the solution, or an apparent solution to the question, what happens when you roll two concentric circles that are, um, that are connected by, um, by radii, um, what happens when you roll them? Why don't you have this paradox where the outer circle is um, measuring something that's twice as long as the inner circle? Um, well, in a sense, if you're measuring space, rather than measuring how long an arc is, but if you're using the length of an arc to attempt to measure empty space, you're not measuring anything. There is no such thing as empty space. That is not to say that, that empty space can't be found. It's that what you're finding is nothing. That's what the emptiness of space means, is what you're finding is nothing. If you were finding, if space existed, it would have some substance, some character. There would be something that was space, something that was space as opposed to what isn't space. What, for example, is in space? Well, let's say that there are only three spatial dimensions. Um, there's no reason that this should be true from first logical principles. There's no reason for there to be only three dimensions. And time is a fourth dimension, but let's just let's go all classical here. So there are only three spatial dimensions, um, yaw, pitch, and roll or length, breadth, and height, or x, y, and z, um, any way you want to talk about them. There are only three perpendiculars that you can, um, three, three perpendiculars that you can draw from any point that are all perpendicular to each other, right? Everyone knows that? There's no logical reason for that to be the case. It seems to be a fact about the world that there are only three perpendiculars that you can draw from any point. It's something, this will be important for when, um, we do, when we read Kant, but it's something that can't be known by a pure intelligence without experience. That is to say, if you invented a computer that could calculate and could calculate so well that it would pass the Turing test, which I think a lot of you know what that is, but we'll get to it in a little while. But if you invented a computer that was intelligent, but didn't give it any information about the world so that all it had was logic. It could have language. It could have the meanings of things. It could have all sorts of things. But if it didn't have any experience of the world, any experience of space, it couldn't know beforehand how many dimensions there were. There's no way it could know it beforehand. Some of you may know, know the book Flatland by E.A. Abbott which is about, sorry? It's an entire book. It's an entire, bu entire book, yeah. It's a short book. It's a circle and a triangle. 
Yeah. Yeah. So E.A. Abbott is also one of the most important Shakespearean <laughs> critics of the 19th century. So it just turns out that weirdo geometricians and um, Shakespearean critics go together. Um, sorry? Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, look at me. Um, so um, what Abbott is, what the whole point about Flatland is here are people living in a two-dimensional world or beings, entities, living in a two-dimensional world who can't guess that there's a third dimension. We, in our three-dimensional world, could not, simply by looking around, experience a fourth dimension. But there's nothing about logic. There's nothing about math. There's nothing about things that are self, things that are true simply because logic says that they're true that would make space three-dimensional. So what that then means is that we can turn that around in a really interesting way and say we actually know what nothingness is and that it actually differs from space. What nothingness is, here's a way you can get a sense of nothingness, is even if you believe with some string theorists that there are 11 dimensions, I'm going to say, all right, so let's say we have 11 dimensions. We can't really picture it, but let's say there are 11 dimensions. Then a nothingness which is not even empty space would be a 12-dimensional space. That is, there, there's no place to go. Or just to go back to our own intuitions, space has three dimensions. If you want to go into nothingness which is not even space, then just go into the fourth dimension which doesn't exist. There is no fourth dimension. This way, this way, or that way. Or they're opposites. That's the only, those are the only directions you can go in. So, um, so beyond empty space into pure nothingness, just go into a different direction from any direction in three-dimensional space. There is no such different direction. So that for Descartes, this isn't how he put it, but that for Descartes, that's kind of how we put it, actually. That, for Descartes, is a sort of proof that's going to be extraordinarily important to Newton that space actually exists, that space is a something and not a nothing. And we all intuitively feel that space is a something and not a nothing. Um, if you were to see, if you were floating around in the universe on a spaceship and another spaceship came zooming past you, you would have a sense that either it was moving, or you were moving, or both of you were moving. But the very idea of your having a sense that there was motion occurring would not be true, according to Einstein, unless you relativize it to something. I'm moving with respect to the spaceship that zooms past me, or I'm perfectly still and that spaceship is moving, or that spaceship is perfectly still, and I'm zooming past it. But that's, we just can't picture things that way unless you have a lot of practice with physics. You don't picture things that way. You picture yourself, if you picture yourself drifting through the universe, like, like in any number of science fiction um, TV shows and movies and so on, or Ray Bradbury stories, picture yourself drifting through the universe, right? That's a, that's a, that's a kind of cultural 
Um, that's, a, that's a universal of our culture. Everyone has had that. You watch one episode of Battlestar Galactica, and you have the sense or, 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 of, or, or of Firefly, and you have a sense of a spaceship drifting, right? But the idea that a spaceship is drifting suggests that there's a background against which it's drifting that it's drifting slowly maybe through the universe, really slowly. But there's the universe, and then there's a spaceship moving however slowly through it. And that's wrong. There isn't a universe which is just there and which things move through. That's, what I, that's the most important single originating claim that Einstein made. Newton believed there was. His term for it was absolute space. And for him, absolute space was what was left over when you took everything else away. Now, that idea comes from a little bit earlier idea of Descartes, where Descartes, a lot of you were, were vexed, both taken by and vexed, with Pascal for talking about how you could know something existed without understanding its nature. Um, for example, infinity or the idea of a point moving at infinite speed and so on. Descartes does a very interesting decomposition of two things. He says what matter is, he gives a definition of matter. Um, matter is something that people have been trying to define since the Greeks. But Descartes gives a definition of matter. And his definition of matter is extended substance. Sorry? I like that. You like that, extended substance. And what he then says is, we can't think extension without substance, and we can't think substance without extension. So in a way, he's offering a sort of answer, a kind of, in some ways, Aristotelian, or Aristotel in spirit, Aristotelian answer. To, Zeno's to one of Zeno's paradoxes, or one way of putting Zeno's paradoxes. So one way that Zeno, you'll remember, puts the paradox is to say that if you try to find the edge of something, if you find the edge of something, it means you, you have both its edge and the thing itself. So you don't actually have simply its edge, you have a part of it. And no matter how small a part of something that you get to, There'll always be a part which isn't only the edge. You cannot find only the edge of things. So what Descartes says is that's actually the nature of matter, is that we have two intuitions, substance or what stuff is. Substance literally means what, under, what stands under everything, what undergirds everything. Substance and extension. So it's not only what it's made of, but what it's made of actually takes up space. So matter is extended substance. And he says we can't think of one without the other. But we can nevertheless, in our minds, we know the difference between them. We know the difference between them because you can have a meter stick made of platinum, like the one in Paris, and a meter stick made of wood, and they'll have the same extension, but they'll be made of a different substance. Or you could have a meter stick made of platinum and a kilogram weight 
made of platinum, and they'll be the same substance, but with different extensions. So we can tell the difference between extension and substance, says Descartes. We can tell the difference between extension and substance, but we can't separate them into simply extension without any substance being what's extended, or simply substance without that substance having any extension. How could you have substance without extension? Look, here's a little bit of gold. How much gold is it? Well, really, zero. But it's the pure thing. It's the substance, even though there's none of it. So for Descartes, we, we, can, we know the difference between those two categories, the category of extension and the category of substance. It's wrong for me to talk about the category of substance, but I'm going to anyhow. We know the difference between those two categories, the category of extension and the category of substance. But we can't have one without the other. Um, this goes back all the way to Plato or to Socrates, where we talk about form and matter, or form, yeah, form and matter. That is to say, you can't have anything that's perfectly shapeless. Because perfectly shapeless would mean what? That it's spherical, which is to say it has a shape. Um, there's nothing that doesn't have a shape. So it has a form, an outline. Um, actually, uh, Plato does this with color and, um, and edge. And he says, in order to have the idea of an edge, you have to have, you have, to have the idea of a color that the edge that goes up to the edge. And in order to the, have the idea of a color versus another color, there has to be an edge between them. So both of those things, but Plato shows how we can think of them on their own. Descartes says you can't think of extension and substance except extension of some substance or some extended substance. So then Descartes says, how far away is the moon? We know it's a distance away. And we know that distance seems to go through what might be empty space. He doesn't know, actually, because they don't know that the atmosphere comes to an end. But he thinks even if the air gets thinner, which they did know as you go up mountains, even if the atmosphere gets more attenuated, there has to always be something separating us from the moon that isn't pure nothingness, which is what purely empty space would be. Something has to be extended for the moon to be 200,000 miles away from us. And space can't be extended because it's empty. There's no substance there, if it were empty space. So he says, thus I prove, he says, that the universe is filled with a substance, a very attenuated substance it may be, but a substance nevertheless. And that substance he called ether. Now, ether turned out to be a brilliant idea because it explained how light could propagate through the universe when it was a wave. So this is the second idea, is that there was a debate um, that people took different sides on all the way through at least the 18th century as to whether light was a particle or light was a wave. Newton thought light was a particle, that, that there were little particles of light. Anyone know where the following line comes from? Newton's particles of light. 
the atoms of Democritus, Newton's particles of light, are sands upon the Red Sea shore where Israel's tents do shine by night. Anyone? Quick chance for any in the class. Yeah, but you're not taking the class. Blake. William Blake. <laughs> nice job. Um, ah, you should be learning him everywhere. Um, so Newton believed light was made of particles, and he had a really good argument for light being made of particles, which was that if you go around the corner, you can hear what someone is saying around a corner because waves will propagate and leak around corners. That's what waves do. They get bigger, they move out, they get bigger, they go through things, and they keep expanding when they go through something, and you can hear what's going on in another room. That's how waves behave. But you can't do that with light. The only way you can see light coming from another room is through reflection and not through the propagation of waves. If you have a perfectly black room with a light around the corner of a room that's perfectly black, you couldn't tell the light was on in that room if you were in another room. If you don't see the light, then you wouldn't be able to tell that it was on. We can only tell that lights are on in other rooms because they're reflecting off surfaces, not because they're waves. So Newton was certain that light was a particle. Unfortunately for that theory, you get interference patterns with light, which we've talked about already. That is to say, if you put things close enough together, what will happen is the troughs and waves of light, or what you will get is a certain characteristic pattern that occurs when troughs and waves cancel each other out, and then you'll get dark bands, and you'll also get brighter bands where troughs and waves um, of, I mean, um, troughs and peaks, excuse me, troughs and peaks um, double up on each other. So if you look through small slits at sources of light, or if you have light coming through slits um, so that so that it will go through those slits together, you'll get characteristic interference patterns, which you would only get from waves, not from particles. So eventually it was concluded correctly, although not entirely correctly, but it eventually it was concluded the light actually was a wave, not a particle. In fact, it's both, but we don't have to deal with that right now. Maybe not at all in this class. Um, but it was correctly concluded that light was a wave. Now, the question is, what's a wave? And um, remember, we talked about this a little bit. A wave is not something, is not matter that's moving. When, and again, I'm simplifying somewhat here, um, but a wave is not matter moving forward. A wave is not like a particle, except kind of oozier which is our first naive view of waves. But the first time you realize that's not what a wave is and it freaks you out is when you lose your ball, your tennis ball, into the ocean and you keep waiting for waves to bring it in and it just keeps bobbing there. And you don't understand. These waves are keep crashing on the shore, but the tennis ball is just bobbing there beyond your reach because your parents won't let you go out into the water. So. You've all had that experience, right? 
not tennis ball, pansy, pansy pinky, whatever, Spaldine. No? It's a, Spaldine is, is, is the original pink handball, stoop ball, ball. Okay, so what a wave is, is motion through a medium rather than the motion of the medium. That doesn't mean that the medium doesn't move. It just doesn't move the same way the wave moves. And again, the way we looked at it in this class is if you just imagine people doing the wave in Fenway Park. It's not that people are rushing around Fenway Park super fast. It's that people are lifting their arms and sitting down. And that the motion of people bobbing up and down gets coordinated so you see it moving all the way around the park. So the wave is a medium that's moving up and down, let's say, for simplification. Sound waves don't actually quite work this way, but it's close enough. A wave is a medium that is moving up and down. And motion goes through that medium because, as with string, if there's some that's up here, it's going to pull up what's next to it. So up means down here. Then as this falls, this part rises, and so on. So the whole thing is connected without the medium itself moving in one direction. It moves when it comes to the wave in Fenway Park at any rate, orthogonally to the motion that you see the wave. The wave is going forward, but it's composed only of people going up and down. Same with waves crashing on the beach. The wave is crashing on the beach, but it's composed only of water that's moving up and down until you get to the very, very last part. But on the whole, it's composed only of water moving up and down. That's all the wave is. So here's this wave, light. How particles can go through empty space, that's not a problem for most people. Problem for Descartes, but not a problem for most people. But how does a wave move through empty space if there isn't a medium that's moving up and down. A medium that is providing the crests and the troughs of the wave. So do you see what the question is? But Descartes had already given the answer before the question was even raised. And the answer is there is no empty space. There's ether. And what waves are is a disturbance in the motion of ether. So we talked about dominoes earlier. Again, if you think of the motion, motion going through a million dominoes, you've all seen that, and it, it looks like something's moving, it's not a single thing that's moving. It's that motion is passed from one domino to the next. In the same way, waves are the passing of motion from one bit of a medium to the next bit of the medium without the medium itself moving any more than dominoes do more than fall their domino length. No domino moves more than one domino length when you knock down a million dominoes, but you see the motion moving through all the dominoes. Same with waves. No bit of water, no bit of no fan in Fenway Park even goes to the next seat when they do the wave. At most, they wake their neighbor up and say, you've got to do the wave, dude. Um, but no one 
is actually moving around Fenway Park, but the motion is moving around it. So light was taken to be the propagation of a wave through ether. And what happened when light hit your eye was that some ether was bounced up into your eye from a motion that occurred far away. Just as when sound hits your ear, what happens is there's a vibration in the atmosphere that hits your ear, and the vibration has been propagated through the air. It's not that I snap my fingers and the air that I've just set moving goes charging through the room and hits all of your ears. That would be sweet if I could do that, but I can't. No, what happens is I start the air vibrating and those vibrations cause other vibrations like dominoes. In fact, sound waves are more like dominoes than ocean waves are, or than Penway Park is. But um, that's the point, is the motion is through a medium. It's propagation through a medium. How, for how many is this a new idea? Okay, so you all sort, okay. Um, so you didn't know about ether bunnies, but you knew about um, luminophorous ether, light-bearing ether. Good. Um, in James Joyce's Ulysses, we've talked about it before. This is another way Portrait of the Artist get, comes back in. Um, it takes place, what date, anyone remember? June 16th, 1904. And there's a section in Ulysses which is based on the catechism in um, Catholic teaching, question and answer section. It's called the Ithaca chapter of Ulysses. And because it's set in 1904, the answers are all pre-Einsteinian physics. And they're supposed to be true, but Joyce writing them in 1922 knows that they're not true. So at one point, the correct answer to the one, of, one of the questions is that light is moving through the universal, ubiquitous, luminophorous ether. And that's what James Joyce's Ulysses tells us, but it's not true. And Joyce knew it wasn't true when he wrote it. Yeah. So did people assume that there was also ether within the atmosphere? Yes. Okay. Yes. Ether had to be everywhere. That is, well, at first they assumed that. That was the simplest idea, was that ether was everywhere. Um, so Michelson and Morley did this experiment. Michelson was one of the greatest experimentalists of the 19th century. So they did this experiment where they wanted to know, okay, so if there's ether everywhere in the universe, that's absolute space. The universe is a pool of ether. That was the belief until the end of the 19th century, that the universe was a pool, a three-dimensional pool of ether. And that's why we could see stars. That's why we could see light. It was only in the 18th century that people realized that stars were suns. Um, that wasn't, I mentioned this before, but that wasn't known before then. In fact, Kant, whom we're about to read, um, asked a question. He was a, the first thing he was was a professor of astronomy. Um, perhaps the greatest philosopher since Aristotle. Um, but he started out as a professor of astronomy, and he asked a really interesting question um, in the middle of the 18th century. Um, he wanted to know he wasn't the only one to ask this, but he was the first person to give the right answer. He wanted to know why nighttime was darker than daytime. 
Now you might say, what are you talking about? It's because it's night. But what he said was, no, anywhere you look, as far as we can tell, there's stars everywhere, and they're pretty, they're reasonably uniformly distributed in space. And the farther away you look, the more stars there are in any degree of space that you're looking at, any patch of sky that you're looking at. So he assumed, if you look far enough in any direction, you'll see a star. It could be really, really far away, but there'll always be a star. Yeah. So if you look, it's like looking into a forest. If you look into a forest and it's thick enough, you can't, you'll see trees everywhere. There won't be any place, let's say it's winter and there are no leaves, but if you look into a really thick leafless forest in the winter, everywhere you look you'll see wood. Everything you're looking at is wood. Some of the wood is farther away, some of it is nearer, but you can't see across to the other side. Why not? Because all you're seeing is wood when you look into a treeless forest. That's all you can see is wood. So, if you look up into the night sky, all you should be able to see are stars. And there should be stars everywhere. The night sky should just be a foil of bright stars. And night should be as bright as day, unless the moon is out and casting some shadows. But otherwise, night should be as bright as day. So Kant was the first person to say, maybe the universe is expanding. Maybe the reason the night is dark is because the universe is expanding. And he was right. It's, again, too simple an answer, but he was the first person to get what was the right answer, which is that the universe is expanding. So, Michelson and Morley, thinking of the universe as showing us light from all directions, which meant light was propagating to us from all directions, they started wondering well, is the sun moving through the universe? Which, why wouldn't it be? It would be almost a return to a geocentric view of the universe if the sun were stock still. Because we knew that the fixed stars were slowly moving. So what, were, what was the likelihood that our sun was the one unmoving thing? Very low. So if the sun is moving, and even if the sun isn't moving, the earth is certainly moving. How fast are we moving with respect to the ether? So what they did was they came up with a way, with an experiment, which Kenny's indicating is more elaborate than I realized, but they came up with, a, with an experiment in which they would shoot a beam of light in the direction of the Earth's motion around the Sun, and another beam of light simultaneously perpendicular to that direction. And the idea was, if we were moving through ether, then the light that was shot forward, if we were moving forward through the ether, the light that was shot forward would be, would be a drag would be put on it, like swimming against a current. So imagine a ball, a beach ball, being pushed underwater. The water's the ether, the beach ball is the earth. Now you want to know what relation the beach ball has to the water, but you can't see the side of the pool? What you can do is see 
how hard it is to go forward on the beach ball versus how, far, how hard it is to go to the side. Or another way to do it, which is in fact what they did, was to shoot some light into the ether and see how long it took to go a measurable distance, and then wait six months and do it again. Because six months later, what would happen? You'd be going the other direction. It, every six months, we've done a <laughs> we've done a 180. By definition, that's what a year is. It's a 360. So every six months, we're going in the other direction from the way we were going six months ago. So, if there's ether, we should be able to measure our speed through that ether by comparing the speed of light on November 12th with the speed of light on May 12th, pointed in the same direction. And that way we could tell what our velocity was through ether on those two days. And by doing it on a few more days, we could figure out exactly what our velocity was with respect to empty space. So it's a brilliant idea. However, it turned out it didn't matter. No matter when you did the experiment, you got the same results, as though we weren't moving through ether, as though there was nothing that light was propagating through. So people immediately, except for Einstein, who thought there was nothing, he thought it was stupid to invent ether. But everyone else had various ideas, good ideas. Ideas like, look, the Earth has an atmosphere. Probably has an atmosphere of ether as well. That is, just as, interesting fact that you may or may not know, all mammals, no mammal is able to get a good fix on what's going on in the outside world because we are all covered by a blanket of warm air, which we create. Just by being a mammal, you are in an envelope of warm air, heated by your body, and which moves around with you. It's not that, ooh, I can do cold place for a second before I warm it up. Even if you do that, a lot of the air just clings to you as you move. So. What a dead human body is like is nothing that a living human body can know, even physically, because we produce our own little envelope, our own little environment, our microenvironment with us. So the idea was, well, the Earth does that. There's ether, but ether probably responds to gravity, so there's probably a bunch of ether that's kind of clinging to the Earth. And the reason that we're not seeing any difference between the speed of light on November 12th and the speed of light on May 12th is because we're bringing our ether along with us. It's like air in an airplane or in a car. We don't feel the wind, and so we don't feel the ethereal wind, which is what they were looking to find, was ethereal wind. Yeah? Because if light is the propagation of ether, okay, so light is just ether going up and down. So if the Earth is moving in one direction with respect to the ether, then it'll move 
It's it's at what what they're actually doing is they're is they're um, setting light off perpendicularly. So light is going this way and this way simultaneously. And what they expect is depending on when we are an ether, de depending on when and where we are with respect to the ether, we would expect that if we're going right into the ether, we would be shortening the distance from here to here, whereas this light would be going perpendicular to the ether, right? So it would take longer for it to come back. It would be kind of floating and skidding along with the ether. Yeah. Okay, look, let's just say you want to see if it's windy. So how do you tell how do you tell whether there's wind at an airport? You use a windsock, right? So what a windsock tells you is what direction the wind is coming from and how fast it's going. But that you can only do because you know already the speed of the um, windsock, which is zero with respect to the ground. You don't have that information with respect to light. So what you do instead is let's say, and you can't feel the wind, you don't know which direction it's coming from. So let's say instead that what you do is you're in a wind tunnel but you have no way of feeling the wind um, because this is very, very, be I don't know, because, because you're, in a, you're, in a, you're in a space suit. Um, for whatever reason, wind is not something you can sense, just as ether is not something we can sense. So you're in a spacesuit, you're completely um, unable to sense the wind, but you know you're in a wind tunnel. So it's assumed we're in an ether tunnel. That's the analogy. Um, so, but you have two ping pong balls. So how do you figure out the direction the wind is in? Well, what you do is, because you are ambidextrous and incredibly coordinated, what you do is you throw those two ping pong balls simultaneously, and because your spacesuit is just incredibly flexible, you throw those two ping pong balls simultaneously, one straight ahead and one perpendicular to that. And the one that you throw straight ahead just barely makes it to the wall. The one that you throw perpendicularly um, comes back faster but behind you, let's say. So that's how, you, how with ping pong balls you could determine the direction of wind in a wind tunnel even if you couldn't feel it. So they're doing that with light because ether carries light. Instead of, instead of wind carrying ping pong balls, ether is carrying light. And in order to make sure they get it right, you know, they say, well, you know, the Earth really is going incredibly fast. I think it's, what, 66,000 miles an hour around the sun. It's going really, really fast. Um, so it could be that there are points where we're completely in sync with the ether, although not in two directions at once. But if we wait six months, whatever sync we're in will be totally in the inverse sync, or will be totally out of sync six months later. So by, doing, by repeating the experiment, they hoped to measure the velocity of Earth through ether. And what they found was they got the same results no matter when they did it. 
So the basic theory then was that the Earth carried its own cloud of ether along with it, and there arose a science. It's, I love it when this happens. A completely false science of, um, of ether mechanics. So people studied fluids and how fluids work. They assumed ether was a fluid, and they had theories of the tidal forces affecting ether and friction and ether friction. What happened when you got to the end of the cloud of ether that the Earth was dragging around with it? And how did that cloud of ether interact with clouds of ether that other gravitational objects were carrying around with them, like the moon? What was the turbulence that was occurring? between the moon's little cloud of ether and the earth's cloud of ether, and what happened between them, and where did um, the ether that the earth was carrying kind of stop affecting the ether in interstellar space. People had conferences about this. People published learned papers about this. There were people who were the greatest ether mechanics of their age. There really were. One of the things you can do, see, everything comes back to Borges. Um, one of the stories, if you got um, Labyrinths or if you got the complete Borges, um, one of the best stories in it, and a long one, is a story called Plan, Upcar, and Orbis Tertius. I know a couple of you have read it. Um, and it's, it um, is one of those delightfully science fiction-y starts, which is that the narrator finds an article about this other world in the 10th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, but only in one copy of it. Later, he finds another copy, and there's no such article. Um, but he's obsessed with what seems to be a description of some other world. Um, what Borges is actually thinking of, and you can actually find this online, is the very famous 1911 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, which is the greatest encyclopedia ever published. Not that it's right about stuff. It's wrong about a lot of stuff, it turns out. Um, but it was the end of the 19th century. The Titanic had not yet sunk, and World War I had not yet started. And this was the, um, the peak of European belief that we could know everything and that culture and knowledge and insight into the world were cresting and becoming better and better and that there was now almost nothing that we wouldn't know. So the 1911 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica is the very famous 11th edition. And it used to go for hundreds and hundreds of dollars, although I found one at the Cornell campus store for $35 because they had no idea what they were doing. They just said, old encyclopedia. I said, yes, and now it's mine. Um, but the 1911 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica is a fantastic, fantastic thing. As I say, it's online, 1911encyclopedia.org. And, um, and a lot of Wikipedia is actually um, um, swiped from it um, because it's public domain. Um, so what you'll sometimes see in Wikipedia articles is that they're taken from the 1911 edition. Um, what was great about the 1911 edition was that the editors um, asked really world's greatest authorities in fields not to write about their fields, but to write about fields that their fields were changing. So that, um, for example, I don't think this is actually true um, 
but it's something like this. I don't remember the exact details, but Einstein wrote the piece on time, which ordinarily you would have, had, you would have asked a philosopher to do. Um, so 19, the 1911 encyclopedia is full of articles by people in fields that they revolutionized partly because they weren't actually in those fields and could therefore look at them freshly. In that encyclopedia, there's a long article on ether because at the time they still believed in ether even though Einstein had shown, had argued that it didn't exist. Einstein, you know, did not win the Nobel Prize for that because people were too nervous that it might be wrong. So they gave him the Nobel Prize for something else, for the photoelectric effect, and not for um, the theory of relativity. But there's a long article about ether by the world's greatest etherian, who is a professor at Harvard, whose name is now lost to the internet. Sorry? Yeah, so you can find it. Actually, I'm not sure they tell you who, who wrote the article in the um, internet version. You may have to, there's, in, the, in the physical version, there's a volume that tells you who all the writers of every article is, but you don't know from the articles themselves. So that idea then, um, that idea of empty space is a hard one but an idea that Einstein eventually said you have to think about in ways utterly different from any intuitive kind of ways. Now, before Einstein said that, Kant said that. So one of the things that Kant argues is there's no such thing as space. Space is only something to be found in human perception. Space and time are features of human perception and not of reality. And until virtual reality came along, until web surfing came along, people, when they first read Kant, just couldn't get their minds around that. But Neuromancer is a very Kantian, as is the experiment, they're very Kantian works. Because what they're saying is cyberspace is only an experience of the jacked-in mind. When you go into cyberspace, you're not going into something that exists spatially. What you're doing is interpreting numbers, interpreting a stream of numbers, or having them interpreted for you, presented to you as space. But it's not that when Case jacks in, he's entering some different space. He's experiencing spatially an interaction which is purely mathematical. And that's actually not that hard to get your, your mind around, to use a spatial metaphor. It's not that hard to get your mind around when you read Neuromancer. But it's really maybe the best introduction to Kant that there is is Neuromancer. And the idea of cyberspace is really almost exactly what Kant means by space. And that's an important idea. The matrix also. I mean, you can do it just with the matrix. The, um, the pro uh, yeah, I mean, the, the false world of the matrix. You could probably even do it with Inception. And that gets us back to Descartes also, dreaming and dreaming about dreaming, etc. 
Um, but that's um, one of the really cool things about it. So I will assume that you will have finished it by Wednesday, right? Um, because it's great, isn't it, if you started it? Sorry? Yes, no, but someone said really something. But okay, I think it's great. Interesting. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it really is. Um, all right, so today, now we can start class. Knock, knock. Forget it. Um, <laughs> deja vu. Deja vu. Yes, exactly. Like in um, Dark City. All right. Um, so I told you, you may remember, or you may not, um, because much water has gone under many bridges since then, but I told you what the take-home exam, what the two questions on the take-home exam were going to be at the end of the term. Do you remember? Sorry? Two proofs. How to show that the square root of two is irrational, and how to show that there's more than one order of infinity. So... Does anyone know a simple way to show that the square root of 2 is irrational? We could talk about this or we could talk about game theory a little more. Don't start with the answers. Start with the answers. Square root of 2 is something like that. All right. So I, I remember this proof now. Do you remember it? Do you remember? Together we could pass this. <laughs> Together you could pass it. Remember, remember the pre-Socratics? Remember Pythagoras? So... He was the one who proved the Pythagorean theorem, which is what? He actually didn't prove it, but he, he took credit for it. Yeah, so that if you have a right triangle, this is A, this is B, that's C, then A squared plus B squared equals C squared. That's pretty easily proved um, by, we won't do it, but it's pretty easily proved. Do you know why it's called squared? Because he did it with actual squares. Yeah, because what you do is you construct squares side C, side A, and side B, and you compare the areas of those squares. And you show that the area of this square, which has side A, the area of this square, which has side B, is the same as the area of this square, which has size, side C. Um, and you do it just by straight edges and compasses. It's easy to do the construction. Okay, so he said, what if you actually have just a square? And you draw the diagonal of that square. So he said, obviously, we can tell. Euclid can tell. By the way, has anyone seen Lincoln? Euclid comes up in Lincoln. Yes. You know, it didn't take, you know, it took me a long time to learn anything, but when I learned it, I remembered it. And do you remember what he remembered? It's actually a beautiful moment. That um, one of the things that you can see immediately in Euclid. Equal to each other. Two things that are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. So you can imagine why Lincoln was saying that. Um, the two things that are equal to the same thing are whites equal human beings, blacks equal human beings, therefore whites and blacks are of equal value. Um, so, also, he gets assassinated. I mean, since, since it's spoiler time. Yeah, I know. Um, it is a spoiler what? alert. Whoa. Is there such thing as a historical spoiler? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there can be. For people who didn't know. 
I mean, there are all, all spoilers are historical because the movies have already happened. Yeah. <laughs> what happen? has happened? When did they happen? Happened to who? Okay. No, no, no. These are deep questions. These are deep questions. Um, Square Steel. Yeah, it is a really amazing movie. Daniel Day Lewis. You're just a part of the Matrix. All of you are. I know, but in my part of the Matrix, we went to see Lincoln yesterday, and it was amazing. The chicken tasted like chicken, but it was amazing. Okay, so take a right triangle an isosceles right triangle, that is half a square. And Pythagoras, as well as the Egyptians, asked themselves a very simple question, which is this part, this diagonal, is obviously longer than any of the sides. And we already know what the, ra what the ratio that will tell us the relationship between that. We know that if this, we peg this side as being one unit of length, then this will be 1 squared plus 1 squared. The square of the hypotenuse will be what? Two. Will be 2, because 1 squared is 1, plus 1 squared is 1, 1 plus 1 is 2. So the square of the length of the hypotenuse is 2. So they want to know, let's call this um, M. No, let's not. Let's call it H. They want to know what the ratio of h to 1 is, that is say what the value of h is. How much longer, how many times as long is h to a side? Seems like a really simple question. And they have a formula for answering it, which is the Pythagorean the um, theorem. So they say h has to be the square root of 1 squared plus 1 squared, or the square root of 2. Now, don't say square root of 2 irrational, I know that. Okay? As soon as you see a surge sign, you think, oh, irrational, that's where I stop. Unless it's like a 4 or a 16 or something like that. Don't think that. Just think that what they were looking at was they thought everything could be measured. That was what the Pythagoreans believed, that, that what the universe was made of was numbers. And if things were made of numbers... You could always compare two things by comparing their numerical value. So, if, that, if this was longer than this, it was a very reasonable question to ask, how much longer? Just as it's a very reasonable question to ask, how many inches long is a meter? How many inches long? Anyone know? How many centimeters long is a meter? 100, 100. Okay, how long, what's the relation of a meter to a yard? You know it's a little longer than a yard, right? Yeah, do you know how much longer? Or the relation, this is why spaceships crash into Mars. Do you know the relation of an inch to a centimeter? Okay, exactly. 2.54? Close enough is not close enough. 2.54 is, is the standard well, formula. Just well, yeah, but you can measure, you can measure, you can measure standard yards in Washington, D.C. and standard meter sticks in Paris, and you can compare them. And the meter stick is roughly 39 inches long. A little better is 39, I think, 0.46 inches long. Um, but basically, a meter is about 
a little less than three and a half inches longer than a yard. So is there an exact ratio? The answer is no, there isn't. There's no exact ratio between a meter stick and a yard. I know, you did say close enough, but the question is close enough for what? If you, well, maybe. Depends how far the spaceship is going. Yeah? Well, I mean, if a meter is defined in terms of, I mean, now it's defined in terms of the speed of light and uh, the decay of uh, cesium. Cesium, yeah. Yeah. And a yard is defined by whatever, however we define a yard. Then we've got two numbers, which presumably we can both express in the same units. It might be a really, really large ratio, but it's going to be a rational relationship. Only if you express them in the same units. Mm -hmm. That is to say, um, the decay of cesium atoms and um, the amount of time measured by that decay um, in terms of the speed of light. But that's not how the yard is defined. In fact, I don't think the yard ever, ever got a geophysical definition like that. Um, I'm not sure about that, but I think they just did that with meters, with the, the metric system, and they didn't try to do it with the English system, because why? Um, but the point is that for reasons that we'll probably get to, um, any arbitrary lengths where one isn't defined in terms of the other to begin with, the way centimeters and meters are, any arbitrary lengths, the odds are zero that they will be in a rational relationship to each other because there are an infinite number of irrational numbers for every rational number. And therefore, if you pick a number at random, which is what you're doing when you take two arbitrary lengths, how much longer is the eraser than the chalk, that's a, that's a random relationship. And so there are the chances are infinity to one that the relationship is rational. So it's really, really hard to find rational numbers. Incredibly hard. So, well, one, two, three, there are a few. But still, it's really hard to find. Anyhow, they didn't know that. Pythagoras didn't know that. His pals didn't know it. So they said, okay, what's the ratio of the length of hypotenuse to the side of a triangle? They knew in a 3, 4, 5 triangle it was really easy. That is, in a 3, 4, 5 triangle, the hypotenuse was five-fourths the length, or a quarter of a length more, than the longer of the two legs, and um, two-thirds of a length more than the shorter of the two legs. That was really easy. But what about the simplest triangle of, of all, one, one, and a hypotenuse? So they knew that what that ratio was going to be, you could put as A over B. And they knew, because that's what a ratio is, you're just going to have two numbers, A and B, right? So A can be anything, and B can be anything, can be however long you want. They can be 100 million digits long each if you need to. But there should be a number A, which represents the length of the hypotenuse, and a number B, which represents the length of the side, which will give you the ratio of hypotenuse to side. That is to say, you should be able to construct a triangle, an isosceles triangle, in which this is A and that's B. You should be able to get that ratio. So what, they, what did they know about A and B? They knew what you would get if you squared it. What would you get? 
equals 2. So whatever h is, a over b, squared is going to equal 2. Okay? So they do a little arithmetic, and they say a over b squared is a squared over b squared. What could be simpler? Which means that a squared equals... No, a squared over b squared equals 2. So multiply both sides by b squared. These b squareds cancel out. And now we have a squared equals 2b squared. Because it's going to be, no, never mind. 2b or not 2b. OK, now we're going to assume that we've put a over b into simplest terms, which means they're what's called relatively prime. What does relatively prime mean, anyone? Yeah. It means they have a greatest common denominator of 1. Yeah, no common factors except 1. So relatively prime doesn't mean that either of them is prime. It means that they don't share any factors except 1. In particular, what they don't share is the factor 2. Or another way of putting it is to say, if A is even, B must be, uh, because if A were even and B were even, we could simplify, right? 6 twelfths, let's say it's 6 over 12, we simplify to, yeah, first to 3 over 6, and then we say, ah, we can get, a, get rid of the 3 and then 1 half. So if A is even, B is odd. If B is even, A is odd, or the third possibility is they're both odd. So there are three possibilities here, even odd, even odd, odd even, or odd odd. No chance that one of the daughters is a girl. All the daughters are girls, but anyhow. Um, okay, everyone see that? Okay. Now we look at this equation, knowing that they can't both be even. We look at a squared equals 2b squared. What do we know about a squared? Yeah, we know it's divisible by 2. Remember, we're looking for integers. a and b are both integers here. That's what it would mean for them to be a ratio. If they're not integers, just multiply them out by whatever you need to multiply them out by till they turn into integers. In other words, if you say, well, what if a is 9 thirteenths and b is 11 twenty-sixths? Well, multiply 9 thirteenths over 11 twenty-sixths. Do the arithmetic until you get an answer in lowest integer form. Okay? Everyone sees that you can do that? Yeah? Um, I see that. I was wondering, how do we know that a has to be even? Be okay. so. A has to be what B isn't, right? Or unless like they're both odd. odd. Okay, but now we look at this equation. We say A squared equals 2B squared. So A squared is an integer because A is an integer. 2B squared is an integer because B is, B squared is an integer because B is an integer, and so 2B squared is an integer, right? Okay, so now what this means is that A squared has to be an even number because it's two times an integer. 
So everyone sees the form of an even number. In general, the way you say, the way if you want to be figuring out properties of even numbers, you don't start with the number n, you start with the number 2n. So 0 is 2 times 0. 1, you can't put as 2n if n is an integer. 2 is 2 times 1. So whatever n is, you can get the even numbers by simply putting, saying the number has the form 2n. How do you do the odd numbers? See how sound comes in in waves? How do you do the odd numbers? 2n plus 1 or 2n minus 1. Either way. Um, okay. So we know that a squared is even and b squared is odd. Now, quickly, if you square an even number, what do you get? 2n squared, 2n, that squared is even. Yeah, if you square an even number, you always get an even number. 2n, square 2n, you get 4n squared. 4n squared is even because one of its factors is 4, right? If you square an odd number, what do you get? 2n plus 1 squared. You get 4n squared plus 4n plus 1. So you get two even numbers, 4n squared plus 4n. Or you get an even number, 4n squared plus n. That's an even number. And then you add 1, you get an odd number. So if you square an even number, you get an even number. If you square an odd number, you get an odd number. What that means is that any number that's squared gives you an even number, must be even itself. So let's say that A, therefore, is even. So it can be put in the form of 2n. Instead of A, we will say 2n. Same number, A equals 2n. B, we know is odd, because B squared, well, we already know it's odd. If A is even, it has to be odd. So B is odd. And b squared is odd because you know that if you square an odd number, you get an odd number. So we will call b 2m plus 1. And now we will rewrite this equation substituting 2n and 2m plus 1. Okay? So a squared, if we say 2m instead of a, what do we write for a squared? 4n squared. Right? Does everyone see that? We've placed 2n for a because a is even. Square it, 2n squared, 2n, that quantity squared gives you 4n squared. Okay? So instead of saying a squared equals 2b squared, we will now say 4n squared equals, let's square 2m plus 1. What do we get? 4m squared plus 4m plus 1, right? times 2. So we've put 2m plus 1 instead of b. We square it, and we get 4m squared plus 4m plus 1. So we've now rewritten a squared equals 2b squared as 4n squared equals 2 times 4m squared plus 4m plus 1. We now divide both sides by 2. And we now get 2n squared equals 4n squared plus 4n plus 1. 2n squared, even or odd? Even. 4m squared plus 4m. 
Just this part, even or odd? Even. even. Plus one. Odd. Even number equals odd number. So, <laughs> so if there were an answer, how much longer is the hypotenuse to a side? If we wrote it's a over b times as long, we would find that that could only be the case if an even number equaled an odd number. So does that make it irrational? So, yeah. So Pythagoras said, tell anyone and we will kill you because numbers don't MFing work. This is ridiculous. Even and odd is the simplest thing humans ever thought about numbers. That some are even and some are odd. Simplest thing anyone ever thought about numbers, and they don't work. Yeah. How did we get to that a squared must be even? Because it equals 2b squared. b is an integer, b squared is an integer, 2 times an integer is an even number. Yeah. Um, the cool thing about this is that you can pretty easily generalize it to show that the, the square root of any prime number is also irrational. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and you can even further generalize it to say that the, the nth root of any number which is not a uh, which is not an nth power of a prime number is also irrational. irrational. But the scary thing for the Greeks was, oh my god, we used pure thought, we thought this out really carefully and really clearly, and we got to a place where even numbers equal to odd numbers. And tell no one. They would really kill people for leaking this information. There was, a, there was a website called Pythagoras Leaks. <laughs> and what they accused, never mind. Um, have, you seen, have you guys seen Skyfall yet? No. There's a Julian Assange character in that. So, um, All right. So now you know. It's all very simple. If an even number can equal an odd number, no problem at all. Otherwise, problem.